0: Now I have two picks left. The first of them I'm going to talk about here. I love Italian cinema, particularly Italian cinema from the 60s. That's my favorite era. And Italian cinema from that time has three main directors who are the big, 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 like artistic, critical favorites, more so than like Leone and people like that. Right. And they are Lucchino Visconti, Federico Fellini and Michelangelo Antonioni. And I love movies by all of them. I love The Leopard by Visconti. That's a fantastic movie. Great, but, uh, but Lancaster performance, being dubbed, interesting, but he does it really well, the physicality's there I really like Fellini, and I, I I don't like all of his movies, there's two I really like which are the big ones, the Dolce Vita and Eight and a Half and I almost went with Eight and a Half because I think it's kind of a perfectly constructed film, there's nothing wrong with it on a kind of molecular level, it's just the overall vibe that kind of puts me off a bit when I really get down to it even though I love it, I think it's so well made, it's just, there's a bit of a swagger there that turns me off a little bit but if you know anything about me, you know that I love Michelangelo Antonioni and you know that I love La Ventura. It's one of my it's like a top three favorite film for me. So I can't choose that because I've already had it in my favorite films list. But Le Cleese. Le Cleese, is one of the most stunning movies I've ever seen. It was an absolute revelation to me. It's one of my favorite movies ever. So let me talk about it. Dom, I know <laughs> you've seen it and I know you're a yeah. fan of it.
1: Yeah, I love it. It's one of those films where, like, the ending, which I don't want to spoil because I'm sure we'll get onto it, but the ending was like, oh, my God, this is this is something else. This is this is breathtaking, yeah. It, it, great pick, yeah. I'm glad I can finally talk about one as well. Um, yeah, <laughs> it's a terrific film, yeah.
0: Now, if I'm going to separate Laplice from La Ventura, La Ventura is a film about how a group of affluent rich people react to the disappearance of a friend, and the way they react is they behave incredibly selfishly. They, they basically, like, there's a strange, like, erotic awakening amongst all of them. There's a woman who starts having an affair with a teenage boy as a result of it, and it's like, okay, you want, you want to be dodgy, go ahead. Um, there's one that, uh, you know, like, just doesn't, there's people that don't react to it all, and just say, ah, oh, you know, people go missing all the time, and then you get your lead, Monica Vitti, who, in my opinion, is the greatest actress ever. I love her. She's a genius. She's an icon. It's a shame more people don't know about her work. She reacts to it, by starting an affair with a friend. So it's about how people react to a shock. Le Cleese is like the shocks already happened in the entire movie is the aftermath. It's a film about numbness. The opening of the movie is the aftermath of an argument, which is so perfect. You don't know what they were arguing about these two characters. It's Monica Vitti arguing with her boyfriend played by uh, Francisco Rebel. And you just, they're in an apartment. It's early morning and they just they, they're trying not to catch each other's eyes and they're just walking around it you see a fan whirring one of them walks into a bathroom and looks in the mirror the other one's looking on bookshelves they're just doing anything not to look at each other then you get the think the first line of the movie is monica is monica beat saying it's early morning we've argued all night that's that's your opening that's the tone of the movie from the beginning and out of the window you can see this weird like modernist structure so if right from the beginning this is um Ensignoni highlighting modernism as much as he can. This is post-war, this is post-war Italy, this is a new world, this is, like, uh, people talk about Nietzsche a lot with him, they're like, this is a godless world, this is a post-god world, where it's all about human construction, human, you know, modernist buildings, this is what humanity is creating. And the two characters, this argument is over. Marcoviti leaves the apartment and Francisca Rebell follows her through the streets as she walks home. And these these early scenes of Monica Vitti walking through streets in early daylight, they just feel like it's the meaning of the world captured on film. There's none of the dialogue they have is particularly like, like important. It's just Francisco Rell saying, do you want to get something to eat? They're going, no, I just want to go home. Oh, you sure you don't want to come back? No, no, no. Oh, you you know, do you want to meet up again? No, I'm, I just want to go home. That's the dialogue. That's all they're saying. But just, it's perfect. It's just this, this crushing disappointment. It's the end of a relationship. It's it's lost love. And it's kind of the weight of the past weighing down on both of them. And then just quickly as it starts, it's gone. And then you have the rest of the movie. The movie can be explained in one sentence. Monica Vitti falls in love with uh, Piero, played by Alain Delon, comma, doesn't work out. That's the, that's the plot of the film. That's all it's about. But it's, it's again, it's just the meaning of life, that entire story. So after her relationship ends with Francisca Rabel's character, Malcoliti takes up with this guy, Piero, who's a stockbroker. He works for her mother. The mother's really into stocks. And they start this ill-fated relationship that's very sensual and very passionate. And um, there's one scene in particular near the end where they 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 finally consummate their relationship. And it's one of the sexiest scenes in any film ever. The scene where they kiss, they they they, they sort of start to kiss, they start to touch each other. And then Monica Vitti pulls a glass door between them and they kiss each other on the glass through the door. And it's just this perfect metaphor of there's something in the way that they're trying to get through. It's so moving and it's so powerful, like centrally powerful, all those scenes. And then the relationship can't quite work out by the end of the movie. But I think ultimately, you're not. it's, a, it's an Antonioni movie. You're not watching it for the plot or the dialogue. You're watching it for the look and the feel, for the tone, for the fact that he's trying to capture what the world is now it feels like it's a kind of spirit that's lost in filmmaking of today i think a lot of films today are just like let's make a story let's make a plot maybe we'll have some references maybe we'll have the villain be a ceo that's kind of commenting on jeff bezos right let's you know i'm making a great movie whereas antonioni was like i'm gonna write a love story okay but it's gonna be about how i think society's decadent decayed and destroyed and nothing can exist that's meaningful anymore that's my movie Fellini, who was working in the same time and was a great admirer of Antonioni, they were good friends. Um, I think Antonioni did some work on, a, I think, a movie called like The Chic or something like this that F- Fellini was involved in. But uh, Fellini was a great admirer. Fellini made movies about decadent Italian society after World War II as well, but his movies are exuberant and parodic. Like uh, La Dolce Vita, for example, people see it as like a celebration of Italian society post-World War II, but really it's about decadence and decay. The, the character at the end of it, the Marcello Mastroianni character, ends up sucked into this world that's kind of hollow and vapid and selfish and he can't get out of it even though he wants to be an intellectual and he wants to do something better but even though you do get that idea the tone of the movie is just like veering between tragedy and parties so it's 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 very bouncy whereas Antonioni's a very mellow very downbeat very low-key and you kind of it, they feel more emotionally strong because of that. It feels like with Fellini, as much as I love him, he's almost like jingling keys in your face. Very, very good, well constructed keys. Like, yeah, look at this, look at this. But Antonioni is just sitting you down and telling you everything wrong with your life. Like that's that's kind of the tone of his filmmaking. What I think makes this one of the best movies of the sixties is that it kind of taps into like Baudrillard philosophy, which I'm not going to pretend I understand particularly well. I've seen some YouTube videos on it. I've read a bit of it. I've talked with people about it. But his idea was that the actual physical and the material of the world is less important now than signs and symbols of wealth and prosperity. So that's perfectly illustrated by the fact that the stockbrokers, they're talking about money. That's what everything for them is about money, but it's not even physical money that they can hold. It's just the idea of it. So you have these incredible scenes in the stock market where people are clamoring and shouting and screaming for money, but there's nothing physical or material there. It's just negative space. That's all that's there. It's just people wanting something for the status symbol of having something. There's nothing material. There's no goal. There's no end sight. There's no spirituality. It's just hollow. And that's, that's the kind of world that Antonioni saw and wanted to capture on film. There's a stunning moment in that one of those um, stock room scenes where uh, an announcement is made over a speaker that says a great man who used to work here a stockbroker died very suddenly can we have a minute silence for him and you there's just the scene the film just has this minute silence everyone's silent everyone's quiet it's an unbroken shot then everyone's screaming again the second it ends so it's like this world that's so hypocritical and strange and confused that it wants to have meaning it wants to have genuine human connection and spirituality but it, it can't because it's so fixated on something that isn't even there there's a character that's a like a a colonialist racist who has this apartment where she has lots of signs and symbols of africa she has all this african these items from like uh like places in kenya she has like a spear and a shield that she says are from tribes in kenya she has these books these pictures but it's all just representations of something that aren't there, right? That's the entire movie. It's about signs and symbols. That's 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 kind of my revelation with it when I rewatched it. That's what I thought. Okay, this is what the movie's about. Again, it's the '60s. There's an incredibly problematic scene in Calise, um, that people have tried to justify. I want to say first, I don't think Antonioni is a racist person, and I think the point of this scene is to criti- is to criticize racism. But there is a blackface scene, and you can't get around it. A bunch of the characters dress up and dance around in blackface in this very racist, mocking sort of caricature of um, African people. It's awful. It's a blackface scene. I think the point Antonioni's trying to make is, look how terrible these people are. These are people that you'd see on the street, normal people who would just have conversations, but they lapse into racism casually and easily, then out of it. This is the kind of society he sees. These people are so horrible but they will just devolve into race. And it's it's the character we like. We like Monica Vitti, but she's just as happy to engage with it as everyone else because she just goes with the flow. She doesn't really have any goals in life. People are being racist. Cool, I'll join in. That's that's her attitude. And it's so sad. I think he captures it really, really well in that scene, but it is a blackface scene. You wouldn't do it now. I understand if you don't ever want to watch the movie because of that. That's, that's, that's the truth of the matter. To get into it a little more, Gianni DiVinanzo is the cinematographer here, and he worked on Eight and a Half as well. Every shot is gorgeous. Every second is beautiful. The music by, uh, I think it's uh, Giovanni Fusco who did the music here, it alternates between these cool, sort of poppy dances and this utterly discordant, terrifying, like electronic music. So the opening of the movie is this black and white title screen with this very, like, um, dancey, like, uh, bouncy music that's like, eh so you're getting into it then it just stops and you get boom, and then it just cuts into this freaky electronic music which is perfect because that's the story of the film it's dancing around life it's fitting in it's being casual it's having relationships falling in and out of them it's about sex and passion and trying to have a job and trying to make money it's about all these things that we do in our lives and then that horrifying moment when you realize your life is empty and meaningless and there's nothing there yes i was an emo when i was a teenager and i think Antonioni. <laughs> is basically like a sort of sophisticated emo director <laughs> that's that's my revelation with him i lo- i just love everything about him i love his philosophy with movies i love that he made films about his own existential panic like people say his movies are really boring that they're the foundational for slow cinema because they're really slow and they're quite some of them are quite long but again it's not about what's being said it's what's not being said it's feeling the tone it's feeling the mood he creates atmospheres so vivid that you'll never experience them in any other movie every single shot is so well thought out i think that it's monica viti's best performance as vittoria she's fantastic in uh, la ventura but here the entire movie is her whereas in la ventura it's you're getting a wider view of society and i prefer that movie overall here you're just it's her life it's vittoria's life it's how she experiences the world through her connections with other people and monica viti every single scene every look of her face every element of the physicality of her performance is just overpowering she is incredible here she's so good you love her despite all of her flaws and everything she does you love her her just her presence is the world it's everything i love monica viti so much here in this movie So in terms of what I said about, like, there being meaning in every shot, the final image that you see of Vittoria in this movie starts with her on the city street. You get the shot of her walking on the street. Then the camera pans up, and you just see her face. And above her, there's trees crossed with power lines. So it's like you're going from the urban to the natural, which is what she wants to do. It's this feeling of escape, which is what she does. It's her final scene in the movie. But the power lines cutting across the trees, it's like there's almost this element of urbanism kind of in her life. She can't escape it. She wants to get to the natural. It's so well thought out. The mise-en-scene is here. Fantastic here. What else to say? I mean, I think that the obvious point you have to make is the ending of the movie, which is the big famous scene. It kind of changed cinema in its own way because it was such a daring way to end a film. We've talked about it before, actually, because on the top 10 favorite movies, we talk a bit about Laclis when we're talking about Laventure and we talk about the ending. But you're led to believe that there is something, this relationship, though strained, will last. And it's a huge spoiler. If you don't want to know, skip ahead. It doesn't. And just when these two characters say we're going to meet up at this spot that we always meet, there's like a 15-minute montage of other people walking past the spot. The two leads don't arrive. The final image is a light bulb in a lamp post, and then it just says the end. <laughs> it's such a daring way to end a movie; like it's so anarchic. <laughs> I love it.
1: Yeah, yeah. I remember um, first time I saw it. I think I just rewatched the ending like three times after the film finished because I was like, "Okay, this is this is doing something now. He's he's done something here." Um, and yeah, it, it, it's 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 incredible. I don't quite have the word to say, but yeah, it, it's it's. Breathtaking the ending. I think it is one of those breathtaking endings. I think a film has ever had.
0: It's incredible. It's so moving. It's it works so well. And again, like what I mentioned the last time we talked about it, is there's a character in that final scene who has that newspaper and opens it, and it says the atomic age is like one of the headlines of a piece, and that puts the whole film in perspective. When you see that, you realise this is a Cold War drama. It's about what life is like under the threat of nuclear annihilation and why romance can't last. It's him reflecting on the great anxiety of his age and making a beautiful film about it. Yeah. yeah.
1: I remember the first time I saw it as well and seeing just seeing the stock exchange, just how he layers that, how he frames that, how that is shot is... It's mind-blowing. It genuinely was. I was like, how is he doing this with the frame? Like, this is... incredible. Like, really just... The, the, the feel of it, like he creates this incredible feel and atmosphere just there. It's a horrible one. I don't want to be there. Yeah. But like that, it's, it's created. It's just, I, d- I don't know how he did it. It's one of these, Antonio is one of those filmmakers where I'm like, I, I don't know how he does it. I really don't. It's just incredible. The craft, the level of craft is just
0: beyond anything else. Absolutely. I mean, the man was a genius. Every scene in this movie feels like it's set in early morning. The streets are deserted. This is Rome in the 60s. It was a bustling cultural hub. But everywhere's empty. It's a ghost town. It's drifting through an urban purgatory. It's about the alienation and loneliness of the characters alienation is the word that always gets used whenever you talk about, whenever you talk about Antonioni, but he visualizes it through the sparseness of these streets. The fact that there's no one else there it's two characters alone. Will they make it? No, (laughs) it's it's such a, it's such (laughs) a good movie. I love it so much.
1: It's uh, the whole thing is just a determined March to like dystopia.
0: Yeah. And it's, yeah. art. it's it's brilliant. It's brilliant. And the ending of the movie is perfect because it, it puts it again. It puts everything else in perspective with that uh, atomic age line. But also, you, when you get there, the first time you see it, you think you can't end a film like that. Then afterwards, yeah. you're like, no, that's perfect because yeah. the whole point is they're not going to meet again. This is life. This is the emptiness of it. The yeah. fact that you can use the camera just to show nothing and have that be perfect. <laughs> Yeah. got to give it up to him <laughs> it's such a shame as well that like his films are less lesser seen he's such a great director and i think his name isn't particularly well known his films are less seen but he made such powerful powerful stories about human emotion and like recently i was reading a bit about scorsese and i really appreciate and admire scorsese and there's a lot of films by him that i like but I was thinking, I don't think I've ever seen a Scorsese film and had a genuinely powerful emotional reaction to it. I've enjoyed them, but I've never gone like, oh God, that really spoke to me. But every Antonioni film I've ever seen, I watch them and I just marvel. I just think, yeah. my God. How, you know, you've, you've, you've elucidated feelings that I thought could never be explained and you've done it all through like, zooming in on a woman's face as she makes a, a minuscule change in the shape of her face for a second. It's like yeah that's it that's a feeling yeah. i thought i could never explain and you've done it you've communicated yeah. it monica Vitti is she's like not to male gaze too much but she is the most beautiful woman who's ever lived. like i could watch her do anything for two hours happily yeah the movie he made um i think it was the movie he made after this uh red desert is really fantastic as well very little talked about quite an obscure one but it's his first color movie he literally went around painting trees and buildings to get the right shades. <laughs> That's great. I love that. <laughs> yeah. man, man was a legend. Richard Harris, Dumbledore, is the male lead in that movie as well, which is really cool. Yeah, The movie he made before Le Cleese was uh, La Notte, which is one of Stanley Kubrick's favourite movies, and it, the leads in that are Marcello Mastroianni and um, Jean Moreau. And Marcello Mastroianni is perfectly suited to Fellini's movies, because he's like he's often described as a passive actor things happen to him rather than him affecting things which means i don't think he's well suited for an antonioni movie with antonioni it's all about the emotion the reaction the the visceral physicality of a performance you're not getting it through the dialogue you're getting it through the body language and i don't think he can quite pull it off genre is pretty good but um i don't think M- Mastriani can quite do it and relegating Vt to a side role is a bit like no she needs to be the lead just having her here as a side role is kind of annoying it's still a really good movie because it's Antonioni but just when you watch Laclis, it just it, it demolishes everything you think a film can be it just absolutely ridicules an idea of like a structured grammar of cinema that has to follow a certain pattern you could you can have no plot you can have it be incredibly slow you can have barely any dialogue and all the dialogue is just kind of meaningless and hollow and you can have it be the most affecting meaningful film you've ever seen. Yep. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. <laughs> I'm really glad you like Luclees. I yeah, really am. It's great. <laughs> there's a there's an awful awful article about it that I tried to write a response to once and uh, the board wouldn't publish it. I love you James and you've made the right decision um because it was just me ranting. But it, it's like pop matters one of these sites that's like l'eclise is a really boring movie and if you pretend that you like it more than pulp fiction then you're just a snob it's like and it, i hate this i hate everything about yeah. this piece <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, and it's it, it's that attitude that i don't like in cinema which is like that's a italian film from the 60s it's black and white that's got to be boring yeah and it's like you know what it's less boring than the avengers endgame like that's a yeah. more boring movie to me i don't yeah. care i don't care about any of these people like I, no, I agree no. completely <laughs> <laughs> i' I'm, I'm glad you agree the, the event the, those films are boring I'm sorry that's yeah. my take but they are <laughs> but I like to think of like the avengers movies I'm sorry to do this I like to think of the Avengers movies as like archetypal check my phone movies yeah I'm just like what well, what time is it how long we got left <laughs> yeah. but with with leliseese the second it begins the second you see her face. And if the story starts, you're like, Yeah, one of the best. Yeah. Games, yeah. <laughs> well, there's Laclis. Thank you for allowing me to pour my heart out over it. Um, Dom, what's your next choice?
1: Yeah, so, um, I felt I couldn't do 60s List without bringing up uh Samuel Fuller, um, an absolute master. Um, made primarily B movies and Pulp movies, so, um, less, less critical, I guess, um, praise. Then he should receive, um, at least back in the day when his films were made. Because the great thing about B-movies was the fact that because the studio simply didn't care about them, they just wanted a second film to go along with the A-picture. They didn't really care what, what it was or or um, what was in it, just as long as it was there. And often these were the the genre movies, your, your Westerns, your, your Noirs, they just wanted it there. So the filmmakers could put a lot of stuff in there. Again, Many Fathers, Termite Art Essay. Brilliant stuff. And Sam is one of the, the greatest exactly because of how he did this with movie B movies. Um and the other the other day, actually, I watched three of his films in one day because I was so rooted by everything he did. And I was like, I need to see everything, this guy that I own of, of this man's films. Um, and so I could have picked any three of those. Um, and I've picked Shot Corridor. Um just simply because the 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 guts to make a film like this. So it it's the story of a um A writer, a a journalist, um, commits himself to a a psychiatric ward um, to catch a murderer, essentially. So he commits himself to to, um, a mental hospital to catch a murderer. Already with straight pulp, already it's the most pulpy kind of story um, possible. And yet, what Sam Fuller manages to put into it, what he digs into it how he depicts america it's a film about america and kind of the the institute is very much kind of a metaphor for america as a country because this journalist um johnny he um he basically he he has like three witnesses lined up that he wants to talk to and because he wants to win the pulitzer prize basically he wants to interview all these people to find who you know who was the murderer he feels like when he catches him he's gonna be this famous man. Um but his girlfriend Kathy who is um who's a who's a stripper actually which is already interesting We are in the early 60s and we have a a you know one of the lead kind of characters is, is is a stripper which is so very rare. Even now that's kind of like a rare thing and quite a, a shocking thing. Um but this is Sam Fuller doing it in 1963. But she's concerned that um if he goes in this uh in this institute that he's gonna you know, come out of it, he's not going to come out of it essentially. She's very worried that you know he's he's going to lose himself. Um, and so he, he has these three witnesses lined up, um, to to interview about the about the murder, and um, it, it has like it sets up like a nice kind of structure there, kind of nice three act structure. So, the first person he meets, um, is convinced he's a man who con- he's convinced he's a Confederate um general and that he's still in the war, um. They basically interviews him and it turns out that, you know, the man actually, um, he's been driven that way because he was um, a communist. Um And then he got kind of, when he realized what the communists were doing, he kind of freaked out and then went the polar opposite. So he was kind of driven insane because when he came home, no one wanted to know him because he was a communist. So he couldn't belong anywhere. America completely rejected him. And then the second man he meets is an African-American man who is convinced that he's the head of the KKK. Um, and he steals kind of um, pillowcases to make, um, you know, sheets to to give out to the other patients. And he, there is this horrific scene when he kind of just shouts. He stands up on, on top of a bench and just shouts the most vile, racist things you've ever heard. And the crowd, all the patients, perform a crowd and they're you know cheering and everything, and it's, it's horrific. Um, it's really one of the most kind of vile scenes and uncomfortable scenes I've ever seen. And I think it's so terrifying because of kind of how gripping that scene is and how gripping all the characters are in that scene. Um, it shows how kind of infectious and compelling hate is. And it's, it's again, one of the most, it's, it needs to be uncomfortable. And um, I think Sam Fuller was, was great in that sense because Sam Fuller was a man who detested bigotry. He was a man who detested racism. And this scene just shows how terrible it is. It's, it's, it's really uncomfortable. Um, so this film is a very difficult watch, um, very much kind of a content warning watch because, yeah. Um, and then the third man he interviews is um, he was a scientist who helped work on like the the A bomb and the H bomb and everything, um, and now he has kind of the mind of a of an eight year old who just spends all day drawing um, because he saw what you know what America was doing with science, what they were doing with these great minds, and they were using it for hate, they were using it for terrible things to destroy the world. There's a great moment towards the end when um the the journalist Johnny gets gets this man to draw him, draw him a, a, a portrait of him, and he shows he shows Johnny the, 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 the drawing he's made. We don't see it, the audience never gets to see it. And Johnny just looks at him and goes, that's not me. And the man responds, I only draw what I see. And then Johnny kind of freaks out because that's not me. And it's like, we don't need to see the picture. We know exactly, um, exactly what, what is on that, what the drawing is. It's a really kind of gripping and breathtaking and affecting watch. Um, The fact that this was 1963, Sam Fuller was so ahead of his time. Um, Just a few years prior, he made *The Crimson Camino*, which is a film about um, a Japanese detective who um, who kind of has a relationship with with a white woman. And this was a point in time when some places in America that was legal. That was and there's Sam Fuller making a film directly about that. He was so ahead of his time. And so brilliant. He writes in his biography um, that a French critic wrote about Shock Corridor that it looks like it was filmed in a spaceship. I can only hope that one day this is seen as mere science fiction. And I think that's so brilliant. Um unfortunately that day is not today. It's that, you know, America still has these problems, the world still has these kind of problems, but it is one of the most kind of kind of shocking and and kind of honest portrayals of America. Um yeah, I, I loved it. I was genuinely just blown away by watching it, completely riveted by it. And of course, the, the the fascinating thing is the fact that the journalist doesn't care about any of these stories. He's interviewing these people that have a great story to tell about America, what America has done to them, and yet he 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 doesn't care. He just wants to find the murderer. He wants to get his his surprise Prize, um, which is which is a very damning kind of kind of um, betrayal. But yeah. It, it's it's brilliant and a hard watch, but it, it needs to be a hard it's a film that needs to be a hard watch. I think it's it's interesting as well because um I guess today the because the, the fact that it's set in a kind of a, a mental institute that I guess that could be quite kind of problematic in terms of how it depicts that. I I'd also say the film isn't really trying to make a comment about that. But, you know, it's 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 very much a, a pulp setting. Um and it, it you know, it's a, it's a metaphor. The institute is a metaphor for America. You know, it, it's more saying that than it is saying things about people in these kind of institutions. So, yeah, I, I'll give some of the benefit they'd out there. Um, but yeah, it's a completely breathtaking and brilliant film that I think everyone should watch. It's it's a film that I'd love to kind of see people's discussions about it because it, it's it's so rich. It's such a rich text text, especially for such a pulpy kind of B movie. Um, and yeah it's
0: it's a masterpiece if I ever saw one. Well there you go. Sam Fuller is a huge like blind spot for me. I haven't seen any yeah. of his movies and I'm, I need to rectify it um, that sounds really good. It's like you've, you've again, you've sold me on it. It sounds like he's very sneakily trying to give some very very interesting criticism about American society in a B movie, which I appreciate yeah
1: yeah which he did like all the time as well. The naked kiss was the other film I saw um, on the same day that i could have easily picked that one as well and that's very i'm, I'm fascinated that he, he i won't spoil the kind of the big the big kind of moment in that film is like a huge kind of twist so i won't spoil it but i was just there like you just wanted to take a shower after it and i think it's insane that he was making these films in the 60s like the fact that was, these are the movies that people just went yeah i'll stick around i'll stick around for the b picture like no one cared about these films and yet they're, they're so rich and you know i they were actually banned in Britain. You couldn't see Shock Corridor or The Naked Kiss until the '90s in this country. It was completely rejected for classification, which is fascinating. Um, but yeah, I mean, it says something about how rich they were and how much they had to say about kind of their their subject matter. But yeah, just there's just a scene in Shock Corridor that is so uncomfortable because it needs to be. It, it's so revealing about kind of you know its topic and 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 the world, I guess. Um, and there's some great moments in color as well. There's some moments when kind of um, you kind of glimpse into the mind of these of these patients, and it's in color, and it's it's really a fascinating use of it. And I think mostly it was B-roll footage from films that Sam Fuller had made before, but he hadn't been able to use that footage. Um, and a great just way to utilize stuff you already you already got that haven't used yet. Um, yeah, Sam Fuller was a genius, um, and all these films are great. And most of his films are really short as well. Um, yeah, they're all like ninety minutes average kind of, um, and yeah, Underworld USA is also terrific as well. I think that was, was that, I think that was the sixties as well. I could have included that. I could have included all the songs he's made. Um, I love every, I've loved every single thing I've seen from him, and I'm very excited to explore more into it. They're just very difficult to find. I think they're very difficult to get your hands on because of, you know, they would B movies that at the time no one really cared about, and it wasn't until, you know, Film fanatics saw it and went, no, no, there's something here. Um, and Shot Corridor was one of the greatest, I think, ever, really.
0: Well, you've, you've totally sold me on it. Like, nice. um, <laughs> I, I think it's interesting, a lot of these movies from this time, because it's the 60s, because it's the civil rights era, they tackle racism. And often they're very uncomfortable. They show the worst aspects of it. Like uh, like the blackface in La Clese or, like, what you were talking about, that scene with the, the man who thinks he's in the KKK in Shot Corridor. Like, today, watching these scenes, they're really difficult to watch. But that was the everyday lived reality for so many people then. And unfortunately still now, you know, but even more so perhaps then because of segregation. Yeah. It's, it's, it's a very interesting, radical time in filmmaking. That's what mm. the sixties was.
1: And it's fascinating as well, how Fulham managed to create this because it's literally it's like the set is basically just one corridor that they had to paint on the end to make it look like it went further back than it actually did. Like mm. these were cheap films that no one really cared about. You know, no one really thought anything about them or, or expect them to, to be anything special and yet what Fuller can do with like a corridor is is incredible um it really is just yeah I, I yeah I would love to be able to just go and watch a B picture and be blown away <laughs> the way I was was with this but yeah Sam Fuller check out everything he did especially Shark Corridor it's it's a, it's a masterpiece
0: I like his cameo in Pierre Lefou yeah that's good yeah yeah I think I Did Godard, what what was, was it this film that Godard saw when, yeah,
1: I'm putting him in, I think it might have been this one, or just all of his films, because I imagine, I imagine Godard loved everything Sam Fuller ever did.
0: Yeah, like the first time I watched Pierre Le Fou, I didn't know who Sam Fuller was, he's like, he's just at the party, and he's like, I'm Sam Fuller, I'm an American director, it's like, okay, real, real dude, interesting, okay. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Good stuff. Well, I'll have to watch Shot Corridor. I've wanted to see that for a while. On Tim Robbins' Criterion Closet, he takes that out and he's like, this is an incredible movie. I really love it. So Nice. That's cool. i <laughs> wanted to see it since then, but I haven't got around to it. I think it was the one of the first UK Criterion Blu-rays to be released. Or yeah, great. I think
1: it was. Yeah. 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 I bought it from the BFI shop when I went down to London once. Oh, cool. Yeah, that was a good, that was a good purchase.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Wonderful. Well, there you go, Shot Corridor. I've got to see it. Are you okay for me to talk about my next one? Yeah, go for it. Now, the next one is going to be no surprise to anyone who listens to this podcast at all, because I talk about this film every single time I do an episode with Sam, because it's his favourite film. But I'm continuing my one film per country rule. I've gone over America, Japan, Britain, and Italy. Perhaps a country that isn't as well known for its cinema, but is well known for one particular director who came from there and made incredible movies there. We're talking Sweden. We're talking Mark Bergman and his best movie, Persona. Persona is, once you see this film, I like to think of it as a gateway drug. It's like the marijuana of movies. You watch it, you take it, you take it in, and you're like, now I want to watch every art film ever made because this is like one of the most incredible moments of discovery that you can make watching a movie. It's stunning. I've talked about it like so much before. I've, you know, that I was desperately trying last night to like, what can I say original about it? Um, some things that I thought of, the Vietnam War is mentioned in a TV broadcast, and you see footage of the self-immolation of the the monk, that burnt and burned himself alive in Vietnam. That's actually there. That's footage of a man killing himself in the most painful way possible and not reacting to it. And you see, um, you see Le reaction; she's just absolutely horrified. And then later on, when you're in Vorman's room you see that she has the famous photo of the Jewish boy in the Warsaw ghetto with the Nazis pointing the gun at him. So it's, again, it's a film of its time. It's focusing on the politics of oppression and brutality, of, of persecution and bigotry. It's highlighting, it's drawing that connection between Vietnam and between the and between the Nazi atrocities, which is an interesting, daring analogy to draw at the time. Uh, at the time, I think Sweden's Prime Minister, Olaf Palmer, was a very big critic of US foreign policy in the Vietnam War. So it's maybe reflecting on that a little bit. So I thought that was an interesting side of the movie that I haven't talked about before. If you want to hear me talk about it with Sam, Sam is incredibly knowledgeable on it. It's his favorite film. uh, Listen to our art films episode or listen to the movie marathon episode with uh, Nick as well, because we talk about it a lot there. The basic plot is just there's a woman called uh, Alma. She's a nurse and she's looking after a patient called Elizabeth Vogler, who is an actor who has stopped talking. and she has to somehow coax speech back out of her. And it's interesting because it's kind of a battle of wills between them. Sister Alma's trying to make her better. She's the nurse. But of course, the roles flip, as they so often do in films like this, where by the end, it's basically Alma confessing the deepest, darkest secrets of her soul. And Elizabeth, Elizabeth just listening and not reacting and just taking it in. So you see one woman sort of start high and go low. It's it's basically tackling every single like taboo topic for the time. There's an entire discussion about abortion in here. There's an entire discussion about like an affair with a boy who was quote unquote very young, you know. That's a dark, dark, dark subject matter to get into in a film, but that's that is something that is talked about in the movie, and it's it's a it's an incredibly sort of harrowing, disturbing scene. But it's also a scene that Slavoj Žižek I think called the most erotic in all of cinema. There's no flashback to it happening. It's all just verbal. You're all just you're hearing the sexual encounter described. And it's incredibly vivid you feel like you've seen it in my mind i feel like i have seen that scene but it doesn't exist you're visualizing exactly how bergman would film it you can see it happening but it's just verbal it's fascinating the way that's one of the best moments of subjectivity in any movie if you can make the audience feel like they have seen something happen but it's just through speech and it's all through the incredible performance there from bb anderson who is just stunning the two performances here Bibi Anderson and Liv Ullman against each other. Liv Ullman barely speaks, and it's one of the best performances in any movie ever. Bibi Anderson is beyond incredible. This is one of the all-time great performances of its kind, of this kind of desperation that you see from her. Sven Nykvist cinematography, I think. This is the most beautiful film ever. I think you could probably say that. Sven Nykvist, genius. Like, I think the most important element in cinema is the human face. Um, There's the quote that the close-up was the greatest invention of the 20th century. And if if we like, if we think of cinema, it's all about the human face. That's everything. It's all about the face. And Sven Nykvist realized that and perfected it in Persona. It's the best cinematography of the human face and the human form that you'll ever see. Bergman, before this movie, had made films like Wild Strawberries, Seventh Seal. These are all films that focus on death. It's this big theme. It's, it's very existential. It fits into the sort of countercultural mood of the time. Thinking about life, very deep kind of movies. But this one is something else entirely because it's so radical and experimental and strange. It feels like he's found the basic elements of cinema of horror and sex and mystery. And he's just kind of blended them up and made them into a big soup. And he's feeding it to you with a spoon. The the beginning of the movie is just a jarring, strange montage where you get an image of a penis, a spider, a crucifixion and blood being drained from a sheep's head. And you're just like, "What, what am I watching? It feels like he's just trying to find the most provocative images he can to warm you up for a movie that's going to be incredibly provocative um, to follow. And you have that incredible transition that I love to talk about where you have that field of just grainy staticky white, and then a door opens out of it, like a door opening from like some other universe and out of it steps B.B. Anderson in a nurse's outfit, like the most beautiful woman you've ever seen in your life. And then the movie begins. Um, Brian De Palmer, I've been watching a lot of interviews with him recently. He's a very knowledgeable man. And he says that um, he, he, he talks about the Godard quote, all you need to make a movie is a girl on a gun. And he yeah. says, in the same way that you have that Chekhov's gun concept, if you see a gun, you, you're waiting for it to be fired. He puts it in quite a vulgar way, so I'm not going to phrase it the same way he does, but he basically says, if you see a woman in a film, you're waiting for her to sleep with someone, is basically what he says. And that kind of is the tension of the movie, because there's this incredible sexual tension between them. It's, it's it's a sapphic film really it's a lesbian drama but it never but it's very ambiguous with how it handles it but the sexual tension between them is just it's it's very erotic it's very tense and it's stunning there's it's all through suggestion as well so there'll be scenes where Bibi anderson is lying on bed on her, on her bed and you'll see levorman stroking her hair And now this could be the build up to sex or the aftermath of sex or something purely innocent that two friends would do. It's all in your head. So he's making you question the male gaze, I think, quite a lot while you're watching the movie. Although you can kind of question Bergman's own role because he dated both of the leads, which is interesting. Mm -hmm. Um, Again, there's this focus on sight with the fact that there's this incredible zoom in into the veins in an eye. So you're like you're going into someone's brain through their eye. There's that incredible shot with Liv Allman where she stands up and she's holding the camera so the lens is looking at another lens. It's all about viewpoint subjectivity. This is the, the stuff that film critics go mad about and get very excited and happy about. So you can see why it's written about so much. Um, just to rec- another couple of things I love about this movie. The plastic raincoat that B.B. Anderson wears, the, the material of that, I just want to feel it. It looks really cool. It, <laughs> it looks like a really cool coat on it. The final touch of the film where... The film sort of builds to this climax that's so intense, the film burns out. You, the final shot is the two sort of like fiery sticks holding the film in place that just go and burn and separate. It's perfect. Um, I love the shot of uh, Lavorman's eyes in the darkness. You have the shot of Lavorman lying on her side in bed, the room gets dark, and the, there's only two bits of light on the screen, and then the light's right in the center of her eyes. Brilliant, again, subjectivity viewpoint. Um, it's all about switching identities that's kind of been talked about to death already but there's some fantastic writing about that online it's just playing with roles and archetypes the mother the sister the nurse the lover it's all blended it's all merged it's all the same thing it's just it feels like such a provocative radical film and it works it shouldn't work but it does it's such a playful interesting weird dark mysterious movie i love mystery in movies i love it when movies don't spell everything out and they try and really make you think i watched um Hypernormalization. adam curtis's documentary when i was like 15 and for a while that was my favorite movie because i just love reading about politics and it's an interesting take on everything but in that film he talks about a computer system that was created as a parody of a particular form of therapy it was called eliza and it had this doctor program that ran on it that was meant to parody a type of therapy where you just repeat back what a patient says to you so if you went and said i'm having problems with my boyfriend it would say you're having problems with your boyfriend yes you know um i don't think he treats me very well why don't you think he treats you just like that that was the kind of way it would work and i think this movie kind of taps into it because elizabeth to remain silent the entire time and alma just divulges more and more it's like her silence is this perfect conduit to dig deeper into yourself because there's nothing else there you have to offer more and more to the point where she's kind of surrendered her identity to someone else perfect what a wonderful way of expressing that kind of theme through dialogue i showed this um, to my friend Nick because me and Sam love it and when, when we watched it with Nick he was just going what? 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 Oh, what? he was so confused watching it which is very cute because <laughs> like the first time anyone watches it you're confused <laughs> that's yeah. that's the joy of it but the more you watch it the more you love it and my final um, sort of note about the movie is that it's kind of a perfect lockdown movie it's about being isolated with someone for a very long time and what happens during that isolation um it's all left a bit ambiguous but pretty much anything could have happened in that house it's it's one of my favorite movies ever it's one of the most beautiful movies ever it's one of the most mysterious movies ever it's my favorite Bergman movie and it's quite possibly the best movie from the 60s that I didn't pick for my top 10 favorites I love Persona I could watch it forever on loop perfect movie
1: I remember reading about it once that said um, it's like the Mount Everest of film criticism. Yeah, <laughs> it's, it's, yeah, I and mean, that's just like the most perfect thing. I remember thinking, yeah, yeah, okay. Because yeah, like the first time I saw it, I was like, okay, this is. I'm not. I'm not entirely sure what it's about, but I. I it's it, it's brilliant, and also it's one of those ones where it kind of taught me that I, I don't need to hundred percent know exactly what's going on, to appreciate how brilliant something is. Like something can be brilliant even if you don't know why it's brilliant. I guess because it is. It's it's incredible. Um I also love it it's Richard Ayoade. It's one I think it's his favorite film or one of his favorite films, like top five, definitely. Um, which is fascinating. Um whose favourite by the way, sorry? Uh, Richard Richard from the Oh RC Richard Crowd. Ayoade Yeah. It's one of his favorite films. Um, which is really
0: quite interesting. Um but yeah. Um yeah, it is a masterpiece, if there ever was one, I think. And it feeds into so many other great movies like Mulholland Drive and um, yeah. Three Women and Portrait of a Lady yeah. on Fire. They're all very influenced by this. Yeah, yeah, completely.
1: I do need to see more Bergman, though. I definitely do. Um, I think this might be one of the only one I've ever seen, which is probably really bad. Oh. Um, yeah, I've a big. I've got a big list of shame that I haven't seen yet, and uh, a lot of Bergman's on there. But Persona is, yeah, incredible. One of the. I think I think I saw that, and I immediately went out and bought a bunch of his DVDs. Because again, he's another person whose films are quite difficult to get a hold of, um, on physical copy at least. So I think I snapped them all up: H and V, deal on, I think, um, and I still need to still need to explore. But Persona is just a, a monument achievement of of
0: film, I think. Absolutely. Like growing up, I would always look at my parents' DVD shelves and look at the films that I wasn't allowed to watch yet. You know,
1: yeah.
0: and. Um, whenever there was like a tartan dvd whenever you saw that tartan logo that was like oh one day one day i will watch <laughs> yeah this this movie and all of bergman's movies when they were first released in britain are on that tartan label um so whenever i see that i'm like oh great films <laughs> you know. <laughs> yeah 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 those are the ones i own yeah actually and they're always really they're
1: always either really expensive or difficult to find um yeah unfortunately um... it's a shame
0: it's a shame uh, in terms of other Bergmans, I love Wild Strawberries. I love Autumn Sonata. I love um, Fanny and Alexander. Those are all like the big obvious ones. I'm not very big on Seventh Seal. I didn't particularly like that. But I really like a very obscure one called um From the Life of the Marionettes, which is a TV movie made in Germany, which is yeah. bleak, bleak film. very right. really good. Yeah,
1: yeah. I need, to, I need to explore them. I need to go through them because I, I assume I'm gonna like them, if not love them.
0: <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I mean, based on this, like when you just see what Sven Nykvist is doing here with the cinematography, the, the way yeah. that he looks at the human face—it's just, oh, it's unbelievable. Yeah, yeah, looks incredible. When did you first see Persona? Oh,
1: I think I was where I was like fifteen. I think. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, which was again, I was, I it was one of those films when I was like, I was just getting into film like properly. And I was just going through, okay, here's all the masterpieces, I'm watching it and watching, thinking, okay, this is brilliant don't know what's going on my young brain at the moment is uh yeah it's not quite sure what's happening but it, it's it's really good um and yeah it's still one of those films where i think it, it's great to rewatch because you you're gonna learn something new each time you do you're gonna discover a new aspect of it or become obsessed with a new angle of it or a new moment in it which is always exciting um it's always constantly to be rediscovered which means as well it's always interesting because there's always something to be written about it or sort of said about it as well i think it's one of the it's the mount everest of fun because of those reasons it's just Everyone has their own ways of figuring it out, and, and that's that's that's
0: great. Absolutely, I just I watched that movie for the first time during my first year at uni. Yes. uh I remember like it was when I was I, mean, I still really loved Doctor Who, but that was when I was like obsessed with it. And at that time, they were doing Doctor Who streams on Twitch, and I remember like um I had to fit because Persona's like eighty minutes. I had to fit that in before a Doctor Who stream, so I wasn't in the right mind for it. And I was just like, "What's this? It's I like it, but it's confusing. Okay, next." Yeah. And then years later, I watched it again. And I was like, okay, this is one of the best movies ever. <laughs> Absolutely yeah. stunning. I, I read a really good article on it once, and I'm just trying to find the specific name on it. Um, here we go. Uh, it's called, <laughs> it's a great title, Thirsty Classics, Persona is Best Watched as a Closeted Trans Teen. And it's, it's really interesting, that article. Yeah. I really enjoyed it talks about the kind of the sexuality of the movie very yeah. int- very good article there's always something to say it's a great movie to introduce to people who don't watch art films and <laughs> just be like yeah. it's short you'll quite like it <laughs> yeah. yeah just watch them go <laughs> fantastic well there's persona dom your
1: last pick so yeah my final pick um This sort of works quite well because it sort of adds a bit of promotion to Film Series Society as well uh, for their Welcome Week screening. Um, And that is Seijin Suzuki's Tokyo Drifter, one of the most stylish films I've ever seen. One, I think, an influential film uh, when I was younger in terms of just what, you know, what is this? This is incredible. This is everything I want. Um, So it basically tells the story of um, Phoenix Tetsu, who is... um, one of the top guys in, in a Yakuza, um, and and his boss is kind of you know dissolves his empire. So a rival um offers him a position, and um, but Tetsu's loyal, so he turns it down. So this man sends um the viper, uh, who's uh, who's like an assassin to so capture him and kill him. And uh that's all you really need to know, I think. This isn't a film where necessarily the the you know the complete plot details are necessary to kind of enjoy it. It's just a complete pop art piece. It's 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 so stylish. Suzuki was one of the was one of the great directors of this of this period. I think um, partly because he's someone who the studio was really annoyed with him all the time because his films are just always kind of crazy and chaotic. So they kept reducing his budget, which instead of making him behave more, just m- made his films more experimental and more chaotic until eventually they just kind of you know. S- stopped him. And um, this was, I think, one of his last films in color. Oh, it might have been his last one of the, his last film in colour. Um and it it looks incredible. There's there's the shot that made me finally watch it. Way back when One Perfect Shot was a good Twitter account. Um <laughs> we're talking like TV. Seven. yeah. We're talking like seven years ago. Um they always used to post the shot a shot from this when he's like when a character is holding a gun standing over a man it's like a, a red background but it's perfectly like cut. Um, Horizontally from red and white, and I was like, "That that is a really cool shot." What what Tokyo, Tokyo Drifter? I've got to check this out. And then I I, I searched on YouTube just for like a trailer or get a get a sense of it, and like the the theme song um, was on there, and um, I listened to it and I was like, "This is really cool." Um, I'm someone who if the if your if your like theme song from a film is great, I'm I'm gonna try and find a way to watch the film. Most westerns like spaghetti westerns I've watched because the Morricone score was terrific. I was like, "Okay, I'll I'll, I'll check that film out." Um, in fact, most Arrow video films I've bought are because I like the theme songs, like to the Giallos and Spaghetti Westerns and everything. Um, and Sogetto was was one of these films, and luckily, it was on YouTube. So I thought, well, I can't get a copy of it here. If a copy ever does come around, I'll, I'll buy it, which I did when Criterion nicely released it. Um, so I watched it on YouTube back then, and I was like, I must have been about fifteen as well. Yeah, again, and um, it was the coolest thing I've ever seen. One of those films where it's so clearly kind of influential, and people have kind of borrowed things from it. And I used to think those were stylish, and then I see this and go, "Oh, they've got nothing on it." Just the the, the style of this film just seems can't to be like translated by anyone else. Um, it's it's very much that sixties pop art, and it, it's wonderful in its in its in its kind of colours and its photography, but also its editing. Um, it's stylish in all those ways, and the set design, the architecture of this film is incredible. The finale. It's sort of like a shootout in this kind of white room with a piano. It's a gunfight including a piano. It, it's it's really cool. Um, guns are in the air. People are running about. There's only like three people involved in this scene. I mean, it's such a griffing and, and thrilling and and an exciting action scene. Um, it also quite you know in a funny way kind of parodies the western. Um, there's like a there's like a bar brawl, which is the most over the top. You know piss-taking kind of western bar brawl you've ever seen really it's so ridiculous and contains multiple you know levels and stairwells and and it's all very exciting um the zooms in this as well oh the zooms there's a great zoom when um he's on like a train track with kind of like a rifle over his back and and it's snowing Mm -hmm. it's wonderful at one moment tetsu sings his own theme song and i mean that's just like cool that's just more heroes should sing their theme song Um, and yeah if you've ever wanted like think of the most stylish film you've ever seen this is more than that Um, it's wonderful it's everything you could want from kind of the yakuza genre Um, Seizen Suzuki I think at the height of his powers even though there were the studio was adamant about taking that away from him and yet what he delivers when um, they don't really give him much to work with is, is incredible um, and yeah, Tokyo Drifter. If you if you're intrigued by this, we're showing it a Welcome Week Film Study Society. Get the plug in. We're, we're screening it Welcome Week on the the times that we should be out today. I need to double check that the times that be up by the time this episode's up. But um, but yeah, do come along because it is it is a wonderful wonderful film that I deeply love. I I, I think you will as well.
0: Fantastic. Yeah. Has has the Film Study Society announced that that's going to be the first screening yet?
1: Or is this the- uh, I think that might be the announcement, unless they've released a timetable today. Though it's the second one, we've got The Matrix earlier in the week. Um, as a more mainstream friendly film, I guess. And then we're going to show this as a sort of. We have, you know, these older, more niche films as well. Um, though hopefully it won't be niche. Hopefully a lot of people will, will enjoy it and, and check out more films of its type. But yeah.
0: Well, fantastic. I watched um, Branded to Kill like a couple of days ago. Uh, yeah, by Suzuki, and I was pretty blown away by it. I was like, oh "My God!" <laughs> it's so- I need to rewatch that one. I saw that
1: when I was younger. I think I, I attempted to watch that before Tokyo Drifter, and I was like, "What on earth is this? This is this yeah. is crazy." So I can't quite um because I think I put it on like fourteen, fifteen, thinking it's going to be like, a, "Oh, it's a, it's a Yakuza movie. This will be fun." And I'm like, "This is this is insane. This is like really something." um So I can't really remember much of it. I think I I kind of not forgot it, but I was like, that wasn't what I wanted it to be. Uh, so I, I need to rewatch it. Um, be a Tokyo Drifter was just a revelation for
0: me in just terms of how much how stylistic a film could be. I still need to see it because it's one of the ones I haven't seen, but um, yeah. branded to kill was fantastic. Like there's a scene in that, if you haven't seen it, people listening, where a, a, the hitman turns up at the house of his target, doesn't know how he wants to kill him yet. So he says, I'm just going to stay with you here for a bit until I find out how and is so determined not to let the guy out of his sight, he wets himself and all of his wee goes into his shoe and he takes his shoe off and empties it on the guy's floor. Then just carries. It's like, what What am I watching? This is yeah. bizarre. Yeah. But yeah, Suzuki, I mean, I do have a story about Suzuki, um, which is like how I first learned about him, which is that my mom used to work for the Vancouver Film Festival in the 90s, and she was on a helicopter with him when they're doing a retrospective. Oh, wow, that's cool. Yeah. I mean you'll probably find this funny like she comes up my mom comes up with like really interesting stories occasionally about like when she was at the Vancouver Film Festival and this one is I was on a helicopter because we were going somewhere to do a screening and she was in the helicopter with Seijin Suzuki and Rutger Hauer (laughs) so that's a strange like (laughs) it's a strange like collection of people sounds like a joke doesn't it like yeah (laughs) Rutger Hauer and Seijin Suzuki are on a helicopter um so yeah that's really cool, but yeah. Also,
1: he probably has um, maybe my favourite film title ever, uh, which is his film *Detective Bureau Two Three: Go to Hell, Bastards*, <laughs> which is just what else do you need to know about that? And it's as good as the title, like it, it's
0: fantastic. <laughs>
1: well, yeah, um... great, great film, um, and also *Youth of the Beast* as well. He sort of remade *Jimbo*. Um, it's one of those kind of films, along with like *Fistful Dollars* and Bruce Willis's *Last Man Standing*, directed by Walter Hill sort of like a uh moving of the um Yujimbo story into a, a different era um which is also very exciting and as stylish and as cool as as all his other films. Um and yeah it's unfortunate that kind of they 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 wanted him to kind of calm down so they kept kind of reducing his budgets and stopping him filming on colour and everything and using black and white photography instead. And that's obviously meant that some of his films were kind of less seen and, and obviously kind of less discovered. But you know I feel like now Especially because, you know, his films are released on, you know, Arrow and Eureka and and all those nice boutique labels um, that more people are hopefully discovering his work. Um, Because, yeah, I'm sure there's many probably that are unseen still or kind of are kind of buried somewhere that hopefully will be released um, and restored and we can discover even more great films. But, yeah, one of the one of the great, I think, filmmakers of this of this era. And I I love all his films and I've seen at least
0: and I'm very much looking forward to seeing more again. Yeah fantastic he's he's a genuinely bizarre director great figure of the japanese new wave if you haven't seen his films check them out there they're, they are something
1: <laughs> yeah um yeah i'm concerned though when we show tokyo drifter that someone might show up hoping to see tokyo drift the fast and furious film <laughs> i am hoping that doesn't happen because they'll be very confused <laughs>
0: oh my god i think if, if you have a a uh a third movie in any franchise the uh the subtitle should just be tokyo drift lord of the rings yeah. 3 tokyo drift it, yeah. it works it works for everything yeah <laughs> with, with that title uh go to hell bastards you've reminded me like um one of my favorite taglines for any movie ever is that there's like there's two that contend the one for day of the dolphin is unwittingly he trained a dolphin to kill the president of the united states which is yeah. perfect and the one for um, the Da Vinci code was, I know what you did last supper, which make, which I find very funny. <laughs> uh, <laughs> well, we've, done, we've gone through our lists, but as you said, there's gonna be plenty of honorable mentions. Um, do you mind if I kick it off? Yeah, go for it. All right, I've, I've got like 40 honorable mentions, so I'll just try and go through them quickly. Piero LeFou, Godar, really interesting. Yeah um i love how it looks i like the ending i like that it's basically just taking every single noir trip and just kind of jumbling them up and going here you go <laughs> yeah. uh the bit where jean-paul belmondo rest in peace what a legend is waterboarded is far too real for me to be comfortable watching it yeah andre rublev by uh, tarkovsky i don't fully get it yet but one day i will and that will be a good day yeah Branded to Kill, which I've just talked about, bizarre film. Very happy to have seen that recently. Weekend, another Godard. It's the. It's got several moments I think are just genius, and that never-ending um, traffic jam long take is just gorgeous. That's like it's like a callback to Chaplin or something. It's great wings by larissa Shapitko, really interesting feminist movie by a woman director from russia about um, a soviet female fighter pilot who is trying to adapt to her life as a school teacher after world war ii and just can't do it very interesting movie i am cuba kalatozov absolute freaking genius releasing one of the most technically impressive movies of its time that film languished in obscurity in cuba for like 30 years after it was made, then Scorsese and Coppola found it and restored it and gave it a cinematic re-release because they were like, I cannot believe this movie is even possible. Some of the takes in that film, the take of the Cuban flag during a funeral where the camera goes up through a building across a floor of the building out of the window and then into the sky is just like this. There's nothing as good as that now. And they were doing that in the 60s charade stanley donan's like hitchcock type movie with uh carrie grant and uh audrey hepburn was like a classic from my childhood i love it um james coburn is very good in that very funny the birds i mean you've got to include some hitchcock and the birds is a classic don't even need to say anything it's the birds high and low which i talked about the trial really underrated awesome wells movie great anthony perkins performance really weird really bizarre i love it Bonnie and Clyde, fantastic film, really great, like anti-capitalist movie. There's a bit where they find out a bank has foreclosed on a dude's home, and they just go to the sign that says this bank has bought this home and just destroy it. <laughs> <It's> <laughs> very much of its time in sort of counterculture, great. Uh, Kess by Ken Loach, really heartbreaking movie, great British film. It's one of those like bleak 60s movies I actually quite like. Um, the Wild Bunch, Peck and Peckinpah, incredible film. I'm convinced that movie is a bromance. It's a gay romance movie. The relationship between Ernest Borgnine, Robert Ryan, and William Holden is the heart of that film. And there's the bit where William Holden comes out of the brothel, and Ernest Borgnine hasn't gone in. He's gay. That's why he hasn't gone in, I'm convinced. That's the twist. Once Upon a Time in the West, already talked about, genius. The Leopard, already talked about, fantastic. Red Desert, already mentioned, incredible. The Battle of Algiers by Gillo Pontecorvo really really remarkable movie far ahead of its time incredibly progressive that movie basically advocates armed insurrection against colonial regimes like it's, <laughs> it's it's really quite impressive for its time and the performances in that are incredible that's like a neo-realist widescreen gem what a movie and the the ennio Morricone soundtrack in that whoa, incredible <laughs> incredible soundtrack tarantino um lifts it for parts of inglorious bastards interestingly um, blow up Antonioni again incredible film David Hemmings in that film I don't know why he didn't become a bigger star he's really really good in it Doctor Strangelove need I say more Sterling Hayden's performance in that film is just beyond incredible I think everyone focuses on uh, Peter Sellers who was obviously great but Sterling Hayden is like the most realistically mad human being you've ever seen in the film 2001 yep. hallucinogenic epic on i secret service the most underrated bomb movie i love it breathless obviously peeping tom by michael powell that is an eye-opener when you see that for the first time no pun intended i mean that's the violence that he gets away with in that movie i mean he didn't get away with it It kind of destroyed his career in britain but rightfully seen now as the the uh the great movie it is paris new appartient by um rivette rivette's first movie Uh, It has its flaws, admittedly, um, especially early on, but the tone and the atmosphere of that movie is like nothing else. It's a proper lonely student movie, which is interesting. There's not many movies made about the loneliness of student life, and that's one of them. Great film. Mm -hmm. The Great Escape. Come on. Everyone loves it. It's The Great Escape. The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly. We talked about The Endless Summer. I really, really like some of the best documentary footage you'll see in any movie just makes you want to go surfing, even though you don't know how to mm-hmm. army of shadows, Jean-Pierre Melville it hurt me to leave that out because that's, I prefer that to most French new wave movies. It's just utterly, utterly unsparing. It's about the brutality of living under a fascist regime. Fantastic film about the French resistance. The Ventura's performance there is incredible. And the ending when you find out the fate of each of these characters that you really care about heartbreaking Marnie, like the most underrated Hitchcock movie ever. Incredible film. Sean Connery is like a meme in it, which is just Sean Connery. But some fantastic sequences, the sequence where you see the memory of why Marnie is behaving as she is as an adult, where she's stealing. Fantastic film, I love Marnie. Baba, which I talked about, incredible. The Innocents and then uh, Eight and a Half, which I talked about as well. All great movies. Yep, all good, all good stuff um what about yours Dom?
1: so mine uh perilla flow as well it's my uh, twitter heading so uh almost include that uh naked kiss as i already mentioned a hard day's night incredible um richard lester directing the beatles wonderful wonderful film um brothers of cherbourg heartbreaking um also looks incredible Jacques Denis is just an incredible filmmaker, just his, his use of color. I mean, Lola as well, honorable mention, um, which which is in black and white, and yet it's still completely you know evocative of, of all the wonderful wonderful emotions. Um, but yeah, and Brothers of is If anyone saw La La Land, he Giselle nicked nick the ending. Okay, um, and did it did it worse. Um, he nicked a lot but of but He nicked a lot of stuff and did it worse. Let's uh, yeah yeah, yeah <laughs> definitely. Sorry yeah. to interrupt. <laughs> Um, Le Pri, obviously, wonderful. Um, wrote about it for an essay once. Um, Carnival of Souls, just anxiety if it was a film. Really just wonderful film. And directed by a man who only, that was the only film he made. Um, he made uh, educational videos, Herc Harvey. Um, But it's it's genuinely one of the most horrific films I've ever seen. I, I showed it to a group of my friends. And I remember kind of the opening, they were kind of laughing at it. Um, And then as it went on, you could just feel the mood shift from, oh, no, this is this is very anxiety inducing. Um, The Innocence as well. Incredible. Terrifying. Uh, West Side Story. um, The the trailer for the new one debuted yesterday, which does look incredible, to be fair. Spielberg is going to knock out the park. But the original is is equally brilliant. My dad's favorite musical. um, Completely understand why. he Jimbo, as I kind of referenced earlier, um, really good. Um, psycho, it, it, it's psycho. What else needs to be said, really? Um, Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, one of the great, great final shots. Brilliant film. Robert Redford and, and Paul Newman, obviously as well. What a duo! Shame they only got to do two films together. Um, but man, um, Majesty Secret Service as well. It's probably my second favorite Bond film. I think it's wonderful. George Lazenby, I think, if if he did more than one might be considered the best bond maybe. Um very short-lived. Um funeral parade of roses. Really, really interesting. I watched that for my like queer screens module. And that was a really brilliant and fascinating film. Um The Wild Bunch, obviously the opening. One of the great like directed by like title drops ever when he's just yep. like if they move killer, boom. Directed by some peck and pa. Just <laughs> incredible. Uh, obviously, revolutionised editing and violence in a in a terrific way. Uh, Monterey Pop, the documentary uh, by DA Penbaker of the Monterey Pop Festival, uh, which kind of predates kind of Woodstock. Uh, wonderful. Um, the Criterion version actually has a great kind of uh, short film about um, Jimi Hendrix there as well, and um, and it's just really brilliant, really great concert footage. Um, you can kind of see the world changing in that documentary it's it's great also bob dylan don't look back also by the same director da penny and don't look back of course kind of i think this is one of like the, the key documentaries at least it feels it feels like one of the kind of great influential documentaries of why we're just following bob dylan around um like a fly on the wall it's wonderful bullet steve mcqueen one of the best coolest film that one of the best car chases ever. Still, still incredibly thrilling. I love how, you know, there's no, there's no music over the uh, over the car chase. You know, you can just hear the engines roar. It's kind of a, a feeling that I think most action movies have been trying to recreate and chase since, but haven't really quite achieved it. Um Night of the Living Dead, of course. Um, Romero, brilliant, brilliant influential horror film. That has a lot to say as well. Um, in a way that you know most horror films do, and most people don't realise it because you know everything has to be prestige horror now. Even though back in the '60s they were making, you know, cheap horror movies that have more to say about the world than the most prestige ones do. Hate that. Prestige horror is a terrible term, by the way. I hate it. Um, horror doesn't need to be prestige. Okay. Uh, in the heat of the night, brilliant. Uh, Sidney Protier in that film, one of the great, great performances. Uh, called Han Luke, Paul Newman. Again, one of the coolest guys. Um, Daisies. Daisies is a really wonderful and crazy and bizarre film. Um, There's a scene when they cut sausages up and I think every every man in that audience felt that. Um, (laughs) Brilliant. Great stuff. Uh, Endless Summer as well. Love Endless Summer. Endless Summer is such a fun and and nice documentary. It's it's great. Uh, Faster Pussycat Kill Kill. Russ Meyer. Um, I need to put the poster up. I have a poster of it. I need to put that up wonderful, wonderful exploitation movie. Um, Alphaville as well. Alphaville is, is is one of my favorite Godard films. Um, what I love how he filmed like in just contemporary Paris and yet it feels so futuristic and sci-fi-esque. It's, it's wonderful considering he didn't really do anything. He filmed on location in Paris in the 60s and yet yeah, it still feels like this futuristic sci-fi diplomacy. It's great and clear from five to seven. What a uh, joyous joyous 90 minutes of existence that film is it's terrific and, and i love it and yeah those are my honorable mentions
0: fantastic that's a great list <laughs> yes. i do have a question though yeah what's your favorite Bond film if uh on Una- emergency secret service is your second favorite goldeneye oh goldeneye yeah. fan pierce brosnan that was my
1: bond when i kind of grew up um <laughs> yeah my parents probably shouldn't let me watch all the all the bond movies that i did before uh, before i was like six but i watched a lot of them same and, um, <laughs> and yeah, Goldeneye is just. No, also Goldeneye is great. Though like, the music in it is terrible. <laughs> <laughs> like the music stands out as dreadful, but you know Sean Bean in that film is is great. And the bit with the tank. Oh my cool god! Stuff.
0: When he, when the um, tank bursts through that wall, he pops out of it and straightens his tie. That's like the coolest uh, of second of yeah. <laughs> yeah.
1: I also look at uh, the ending as well when you know he he he's, he drops Sean Bean and he's like for
0: England, James. No, for me. Yeah. That's cool. That's cool stuff. <laughs> uh, me and my friend Nick, who's on the show, sometimes we'll just we'll, when we're hanging out, we'll just randomly look at each other and scream, "Give me the codes, Natalia! Give me the codes!" <laughs> That's great. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, I mean, like it has one of the silliest moments in any Bond film, though. When he's in the helicopter with the ejector seat, and the helicopter's rigged to explode, and it's like just presses the ejector seat and gets out of it. It's like you should have seen that, shouldn't you? Like it's like. <laughs> <laughs> It's like that uh, classic air Burn on Mock the Week where it's like Unlikely Lies Tear in a bomb movie. Should we just check that he's dead before we move on? With <laughs> 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 Classic. I mean, like that uh, Casino Royale and Unimagined Secret Service in my faves. So, yeah. yeah was... Oh, Dom, thank you so much for joining me again. It's been a pleasure talking about films with you. I always learn interesting stuff about films I like or films I don't even know about. Thanks so much.
1: Thanks for having me. I, I learn a lot as well. I have many films to my watch list
0: that I uh, need to have seen, so thanks for uh, recommending those. Oh man, that's cool. I mean, like you're talking about Sam Fuller and people, like a <laughs> giant blind spots <laughs> for me that I need to check out. Fantastic. Yeah,
1: cheers. Thanks, thanks for having me. And it's, I can't wait to do the uh, 50s decade. That should be a
0: fascinating one as well. I'm really looking forward to talking about 50s movies too, Yeah. yeah. Thank you so much to everyone for listening to this episode of the Boar Film Podcast. Um, if you ever want to write articles for the Boar, can you please go onto Facebook, go onto the Boar Film Writers Group, just apply, we'll let you in. I, w- I really want to see more people writing um, with the new com- year coming around. So if you're new to Warwick, if you love films, write. There's no restrictions to entry, there's no barriers. As long as you're a member of Boar Film, you're in. As long as you remember the Boar, I should say, you're in. You can write, I'd love to see new articles uh this podcast is updated every single week there's a new episode, so please just keep checking for it um i upload them on mondays go on the ball film twitter uh go on the ball Film facebook you can see all updates dom if you got any social media that you'd like to recommend uh yes on twitter
1: if you want to see my uh, more short uh, film opinions which is most of what i uh tweet about that's a uh, dom of ginger uh letterboxd for see what films i've been watching that's a uh, dingo of ginger <laughs> And if you're after a cool society to join, the Film Studies Society is a good option. We're we'll doing weekly screenings. We're putting that schedule together now, which is very exciting stuff. Of course, lots of socials and all that stuff as well. Um, so yeah, check us out, come along. It's, uh, it's free and you'll see some good films personally picked by me. At least I, I hope you find them good. I do, I think they're
0: all great fantastic we heard it here uh if you want to see if you want to follow me on Letterboxd, just um yeah frank evans my avatar as always is shelly deval it shall never change Shirley deval supremacy forever <laughs> we love shelly deval um thank you so much for listening to the episode of the podcast we'll be back with dom pretty soon with an episode on the best films of the 1950s in the meantime keep reading ball film articles keep listening to the podcast and thank you very much for listening to this one goodbye and stay safe while there's any restrictions at place anywhere where you might be thank you so much goodbye